Hello and welcome to the uh, Jean Monnet uh, lecture, Europe Beyond Governance lecture series. Uh, it's very nice to see you all. Um, the aim of the series, as you know, is to, to explore uh, our, our, the understanding of Europe, our understanding of Europe beyond the sort of strictures of political science, social science, as we're conventionally understood, to think of uh, different ways of uh, thinking about Europeanness. So thanks to the LSE and the uh, Forum for European Philosophy, um, this is the second in a three-year uh, program of lectures. The lectures last year uh, curated, if that's the right word, curated, or Jonathan Drumsfield from Reading was in charge of them. <coughs> we had, uh, and that subject was a uh, Europe and art. And we had uh, three eminent theorists of art talking about Europe and art. Uh, next year, uh, the topic will be Europe and European uh, Europe and philosophy. Uh, but this year, the second year of the series, the topic is um, uh, you know, Europe beyond governance and, and literature. But literature uh, is an enormously big topic. Derrida says literature is the strange institution that allows you to talk about anything. So it's literature with a, a focus or interest in memory. Memory is one of the great uh, subjects of the last 10 years or so of intellectual life in a rare different fields. And so literature and memory in Europe is going to be our, our theme. We have speaking a, uh, a historian, a novelist, and a literary, crit a literary critic. Um, and so I want to introduce our, our first speaker uh, in the series for today's lecture, uh, Professor Dan Stone, uh, Professor of uh, Modern History at Royal Holloway University in London. Um, I've been trying to think of something some flattering thing to say about Dan, but wasn't rude about the old historians who he eclipses. Um, and I, I think what I want to say one of the things about Dan's work, which I'll tell you more about in a second, is that um, not only is he fantastic on historical detail and historiography, but also he's able to see all that work in uh, a uh, challenging intellectual framework as well. Dan describes himself as a historian of ideas, he works on uh, historiography on interpretations of the Holocaust, on genocide studies, and the history of 20th century Europe. Two notable publications, um, historiography, the Historiography of Genocide, 2008, and uh, last year's Histories of the Holocaust, which uh, are written in hospital, so well written, you can read it on your hospital bed. Um, he's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Post-War European History, which is forthcoming. Um, well, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, just a, a small topic uh, for today's lecture, literature and history in post-Cold War European memory, so I um, imagine everybody will be able to pick holes in this, but I'll, I'll do my best. A uh, hundred years ago, G.M. Trevelyan claimed in his famous essay, Cleo, Amuse, 1903, that, quote, those who write or read the history of a period should be soaked in its literature and that those who read or expound literature should be soaked in history. Whilst agreeing with Trevelyan, I'd like to proceed by combining his admiration for narrative history and distaste for scientific history with a more late 20th, early 21st century concern for the problems of narrative as identified by Roland Barthes and Hayden White. Uh, the reality effect, as Barthes uh, calls it, or determinism, uh, the, as White uh, identifies it, the strange ways in which textual artifice substitutes for reality. I appeal to Trevelyan because I want to say something about the ways in which European literature 
of the post-Cold War period illuminates the age. And because a historian uh, should most assuredly be immersed in the literature of the period or problem he studies. But I want also to temper Trevelyan's enthusiasm with contemporary warnings, because the period about which I'm speaking, our own, is, for want of a better term, the age of postmodernism, the electronic age, uh, when the occurrence of events and the narration of them have become intertwined in ways that would, by turns, have bamboozled and disheartened Cambridge historians of any stripe in the early 20th century, whether uh, literary historians like Trevelyan or scientific historians like Berry. Although Trevelyan, uh, I think, would also have been surprised and delighted at the increased demand for and availability of popular history books, something which he um, thought at the end of World War II thought would, would, uh, would never recover. In this lecture, I don't want to make the somewhat condescending historian's claim that literature, when handled carefully, can be a useful historical source. But I want to stress two points concerning history and literature. First, the fact that all historical reconstructions of the past, like fiction, have an irretrievably fictive dimension. History, like literature, is fictive in the sense that it is made up or constructed only on the basis of sources that literature can use or abuse at its leisure. As uh, Anne Kerfoys and John Docker have argued, recognising history's doubleness, that is, history as rigorous scrutiny of sources, and history as a part of the world of literary forms, means that a self-conscious recognition of the fictive elements in historical writing strengthens, not weakens, the search for truth. Second, literature, if not simply to be used by historians as a useful historical source, in the sense of providing information about, for example, the spread of technology or social conditions, is still useful as an indication of the mores and cultural values of an age. And it's this aspect of literature's historicizability that interests me here. In particular, I want to suggest that contemporary literature contributes to shaping European collective memories of World War II and the Holocaust in ways that parallel debates amongst historians are taking place uh, at the moment. The fictive element of history and the historical element of literature, not just the setting of a story in a recognizable, historicizable context, but its unfolding in time, mean that both genres, which are in many ways intertwined, contribute to an age's historical consciousness and collective memories. As Trevelyan said, literature and history are twin sisters, inseparable. This claim about the nearness uh, of history and literature and the necessary inseparability of both in the acquisition of a historical consciousness sometimes makes people uncomfortable. In the field in which I mainly work, which is Holocaust studies, one often hears the argument, rather bizarre to my mind, that authors of Holocaust fiction have a duty to be faithful to the facts in a way that is not the case for authors who deal with other subjects. This seems to me uh, to contradict the very definition of fiction, uh, in which the truth that shines through is of a different order to the empirical truth that is the basis of and prerequisite for historical interpretation. I hope you don't think that's a straw man. You can easily come across those sorts of arguments about um, Holocaust fiction. It's also curiously naive about history. As I have just suggested, part of what makes history history is its necessarily fictive component. That is, a process of making up, not in the sense of inventing, but in the sense of constructing the past through a combination of rigorous empiricism and literary artifice. 
In history, empirical accuracy is the necessary starting point for the real work of colligating those facts to produce an implotment, a narrative or analytical framework that makes meaning out of the past for those who live in the present. In fiction, especially historical fiction, the facts can be played with since the narrative meaning that the author aims to produce is not one that depends on empirical accuracy. A novel can be judged on the basis of many criteria for being good or bad literature, but its adherence to historical facts is not one of them. One can perhaps understand the anxieties that give rise to demands that novelists adhere to historical fact when writing about the Holocaust. Fears of relativising, downplaying, or otherwise beautifying or belittling suffering, or giving succour to Holocaust deniers, again, to my mind, a, a misplaced fear, given that deniers like to focus on supposed empirical inaccuracies. But uh, among the very best examples of Holocaust fiction are cases of magical realism, such as David Grossman's See Under Love, or Andre Schwarzbart's The Last of the Just, or novels which conform to the criteria of high modernism, and which employ parataxis, multiple narrators, chronological distortion, stream of consciousness, or internal monologue, in order to break with the reality effect, all the more strongly to reinforce it. Uh, examples might be uh, Piotr Ravitch's Blood from the Sky, uh, or most brilliantly, Bogdan Wojdowski's Bread for the Departed, a novel about uh, the Woods Ghetto, which is brilliant. Or, uh, perhaps one might say, following Hayden White, that the reality effect created by these novels is one that is more suited to fractured experiences that typify modernity. Again, that's a kind of uh, a reality effect argument. The case of Jonathan Littell's extraordinary book, The Kindly Ones, whose PhD theses will surely not be long in coming, uh, is especially apt. Although clearly rooted in the historical work of Christopher Browning, Michael Wildt, Ulrich Herbert, and others, the central protagonist of Littell's book, the aberrant SD intellectual Max Auer, takes the reader uncomfortably deep into the Nazi mind in a way that a historian could not do if relying solely on the written documentary evidence. Raymond Federman does something similar from the victim's position, producing quasi-autobiographical novels which take the trauma of the Holocaust as their centrepiece. Federman was uh, saved uh, by being uh, shoved into a closet by his mother as the rest of his family were uh, deported from their apartment in, uh, in Paris uh, to Auschwitz. And that moment is, the, if, if you like, the, the central uh, defining feature of, of, all, of his, uh, all of his work. His, his work offers, however, uh, no certainty as to chronology, sequence, uh, or even the factuality of the events. He's continually reinventing his uh, autobiography in a way of, of trying to come to terms with this central moment of trauma uh, at the heart of uh, his life. There are also, of course, bad Holocaust novels. Novels which use the Holocaust as a backdrop to lend an otherwise unremarkable book a sense of gravitas, or novels which seek to satirise the contemporary misuse of the Holocaust in the public sphere, but which only end by exemplifying what they seek to criticise, uh, Tova Reich's My Holocaust is a prime example, in my opinion. In this talk, then, I'm not going to be criticising fiction on the basis that it's empirically accurate or inaccurate. What interests me is how the recent past is shaped and explored and sometimes violently shaken in the process to which literature necessarily contributes of forging post-Cold War European memory. So this is... Uh, Hayden White defines contemporary history as um, that which is in the process uh, of becoming past... And literature, I think, contributes to this uh, process uh, of uh, 
historicizing the recent past just as much as, uh, as uh, history writing does. Um, a slight excursion here, which is just because I had to mention it. In Roberto Bolaño's mysterious book, Nazi Literature in the Americas, some of you might be familiar with that book, one of the writers, this is a book of um, imaginary writers that he uh, invents and provides little biographies of, uh, of each of them. One of his writers, uh, Jim O'Bannon, travels in 1963 from his hometown of Macon, Georgia, to Europe on a Daniel Stone Fellowship for the Development of Young Artists. I was quite uh, shocked when I read that. Um, O'Bannon seems politically milder than most of Bolaño's characters, uh, but his hatred of homosexuals, Jews, and African Americans holds firm throughout his life, with the exception of African Americans, who, uh, we are told, he was beginning gradually to accept at the time of his death in 1996. In what follows, then, uh, you are invited on a Daniel Stone Fellowship uh, for investigating the interrelationship between history and literature in the construction of post-Cold War European memory. Um, although I've used the term in the singular, in fact, we're dealing here with memories. On the one hand, as we'll see, there's an attempt to forge uh, a European memory, though this is not necessarily a predictable EU-friendly memory. But on the other hand, the end of the Cold War permits the articulation of revanchist, aggressive, chauvinist, and jealously exclusivist narratives, which serve the purpose of promoting and legitimizing divisive narratives of the sort that had been papered over during the Cold War years. These views are as observable in fiction uh, as they are in the contested arenas of politics, film, museums, commemoration ceremonies, or other manifestations of today's memory wars. Bolaño's book is a suitable starting point because, apart from the happy nominative coincidence, uh, Bolaño continues a tradition of imagining Nazis in counterfactual scenarios that, from science fiction uh, to potboilers, have helped in the construction of popular understandings of what Nazism was about. In the post-Cold War period, Bolaño's book constitutes an example of how Nazism is no longer seen as a wayward and obscenely attractive ideology held by some mad others over there somewhere, but a worldview that garnered support across the globe. Merely the fact of writing about American Nazis, I think, is uh, an illustration of, uh, of that point. In the post-war period, serious uh, European fiction played an important role in breaking through the Cold War car carapace uh, which shielded Europe's public from some of the secrets or open secrets that helped to cement post-war social stability. For example, the communist takeover of Eastern Europe and the adaptations and social contortions which it required was brilliantly fictionalised in Czesław Miłosz's The Seizure of Power or Jerzy Andrzejewski's Ashes and Diamonds, the latter memorably filmed by Andrzej Wajda. In West Germany, the filmmaker and author Alexander Kluger provided vicious satires of German types, uh, such as the cynical petty bourgeois opportunist Lieutenant Boulanger, who moved smoothly from being a minor Nazi functionary to a minor nobody in the Federal Republic. The Bonn Republic itself uh, could be forensically examined in uncomfortable proximity, as in the novels of Wolfgang Köppen. Thomas Bernhardt's a merciless expose of the nastiness and the kitsch that lay behind the Austrian facade of local homeliness needs no introduction or explanation. It seems to me uh, Bernhardt's uh, annihilation of, of Austrianness is akin to uh, Zizek's analysis of The Sound of Music, where 
Uh, on the face of it, the, the film is masquerading as a kind of anti-Nazi parable, where in fact the, what the film is about is a defence of the local Heimat from foreign, uh, from foreign invaders and is itself, uh, of course, a recapitulation of the same narrative. But in the post-Cold War period, literature like history has broadened its horizons so that its role in the construction of European memory is simultaneously more exciting and more complex. What can be said now after the demise of the post-war consensus in both Eastern and Western Europe far exceeds what could be said during the Cold War because of censorship and repression in the East and pressures of consensus and post-war myth-making in the West. Elsewhere, I've argued that the um, post-1989 years are to all intents and purposes, that's to say philosophically, if not chronologically, the real post-war years. I can elaborate on that later if you want. Uh, after an initial few years of openness and possibility, the febrile nature of which often gets overlooked in over-determined readings of the inevitability of the division of Europe, the Cold War not only provided a new military strategic shape to Europe, but also imposed new mental landscapes. Foremost among these was uh, the suppression of certain kinds of information about World War II and their replacement with mythic narratives. Post-war culture was, of course, suffused with discussion and imagery of the recent war. How could it not be? But this flow of information was increasingly channeled in certain directions. In what soon became communist Eastern Europe, the narrative of anti-fascism meant that the Red Army was to be celebrated as the liberator from fascist occupation, without mention of the new Soviet occupation that was being forcibly secured in the Baltic states within the border of the USSR and in the Soviet-backed Eastern European states outside of them. Those who saw communism in a different light would be condemned as fascist collaborators, and the full extent of local support for Nazism across Eastern Europe, albeit often driven by the will to survive and to feed one's family, rather than by pure ideological identification, was thoroughly whitewashed. In Western Europe, the rearming of the Federal Republic of Germany and its integration into the NATO alliance, and a concomitant turn everywhere to economic reconstruction, especially following the Marshall Plan and then the establishment of the ECSC, the forerunner of the EEC, meant that a search for social stability uh, that required downplaying internal national divisions between resistance fighters, collaborators, and the majority in the middle had to take place, uh, and aggregating the, dis the differences between types of suffering, whether under Nazi occupation at home, uh, as forced labour in the borders of the Reich, uh, or in a concentration camp. As Tony Judd argues, the years 1945-48 to 48 were, quote, the moment not only of the division of Europe and the first stage of its post-war reconstruction, but also, and in an intimately related manner, the period during which Europe's post-war memory was moulded. The end of the Cold War blew apart these mythical narratives, which had in any case already been unravelling, thanks in large part to the work of filmmakers, historians and novelists. Think, and there are many examples, but think of uh, Marcel Ophuls, uh, The Sorrow and the Pity, uh, or Michel Fairhoven's The Nasty Girl. Uh, common to the history and uh, literature of recent years has been an attempt to rethink what is meant by Europe, especially the collective memories of Europe that are being forged since the end of the Cold War. <coughs> On the face of it, as Heike Kager points out, the turning point of 1989-90 as a landmark for reinterpretations of World War II is much more self-evident in Eastern European societies than Western. In the first decade after the collapse of communism, 
a rapid delegitimization of official narratives went hand in hand with the return to the public sphere of formerly hidden and suppressed aspects of the national past. This process has had domestic and Europe-wide resonances, as it's clear that the EU is having an effect on the ways in which these new memory discourses are being played out. For example, with the development of new history textbooks uh, or local museums, or simply by the setting out of Western memory uh, as the yardstick by which local standards should be judged. Russia, uh, as Cargo notes, is an exception, uh, as blaming foreign forces for the imposition of communism uh, is obviously not possible in quite the same way as it is elsewhere in the region. Here, the revision is the other way round, and one witnesses a reinforcement of the narrative authority of the Great Patriotic War, rather than an attempt to undermine it, at least at the official level. But Western European memories are also subject to revision after the end of the Cold War, as now, if not for the first time, then certainly more vociferously than ever before, a multiplicity of narratives, including ones previously consigned to the lunatic fringe, could compete for listeners and for respectability. This isn't just a matter of confronting simultaneous tensions between the local and the supranational, which have long characterised Europe, but of challenges to the very notion of what Europe means, whether it can transcend the petty nationalisms without sequestering them all into a boring homogeneity, whilst also recognising that Europe does not have a privileged claim on cultural grandeur. Can one find a role for Europe that does not succumb to the grandiose claims about it being an ideal yet to come or some other future-oriented transcendental Eurocentrism, the sort that um, we're familiar with from Derrida and, and others? Having set out these uh, initial thoughts on history, literature and memory, I can, I'm saving methodological reflections on memory for other forums but can talk about them if anyone's interested. Uh, I want to proceed by giving... Uh, a few examples from recent European fiction, by which I mean literature not just written or published in Europe, but literature written about Europe, wherever it's published and by whomever it's written. Literature which addresses the problem of dealing with the past and that thus contributes to the construction of post-Cold War European memory. Uh, my selections, just a, just a few texts, are obviously somewhat random, given the possible uh, choices, but I hope that they reflect more than the pure chance of things I have read. Um, I've tried to choose works which question notions of Europeanness, particularly works written by Eastern Europeans. Whilst it may be the case that ultimately Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy, uh, which also deals with the after-effects of Nazism in Sweden, and more broadly, don't forget, um, has had a wider impact on European public spheres, I've chosen here for the most part uh, less well-known works, both to give them an airing uh, and because they offer subtler insights into how contemporary European fiction is reinterpreting the memory and history of World War II, which is not to say I don't, uh, don't like Larson's books. I also, like everyone else, read them madly as soon as they came out. Um, one particularly uh, striking example uh, of this uh, phenomenon is uh, Patrick Ujednik's uh, Europeana, 2001 in Czech, uh, 2005 in English, a book which straddles the genres of history and fiction. Europeana uh, is written in an idiosyncratic, uh, it's, it's written as an idiosyncratic synthetic history of 20th century Europe and almost takes the form of a medieval chronicle, uh, recording one thing after another. I say almost uh, because the book doesn't consist simply of recorded facts but of quasi commentaries on them. 
It mixes the seemingly trivial, such as Barbie dolls, with the unquestionably weighty, uh, such as trench warfare. It has no clear chronological direction. It doesn't simply begin in 1900 and end in, in uh, 2000. And it mocks the pretensions of objective history and academic theories drawn from political science, sociology, philosophy, and anthropology. Not the least of these is the theme of memory and memorials, uh, to which Ujednik uh, dedicates considerable space uh, in this small book. The book's only about 125 pages. An example which is especially pertinent here concerns the way in which Ujednik deals with the final solution and the ways in which it has been treated since the war. He brings to bear on the subject an appalled but somewhat cynical eye, certainly not contesting the enormity of what the Nazis did, but implying, or at least ventriloquizing the argument, I'm not so naive as to mistake Ujednik for the person who's actually the narrator of the book, Um, but what later became the common trope of the supposed uniqueness of the Holocaust in the West makes little sense from an Eastern European perspective. It's quite a long quotation, but I hope um, you'll agree with me that it's worth uh, citing. And you you get here a sense of the the style of the book throughout, this kind of um, analytic sort of style. And when the Nazis lost the war, the victorious countries organised an international trial. And the lawyers pondered about what name to give to the final solution of the Jewish question, and the various plans for the extermination of the gypsies, Slavs, etc., and they invented the term genocide. Historians concluded that in the 20th century, about 60 genocides had occurred in the world, but not all of them entered historical memory. Historians said that historical memory was not part of history, and memory was shifted from the historical to the psychological sphere. And this instituted a new mode of memory, whereby it was no longer a question of memory of events, but memory of memory. And the psychologization of memory aroused in people a feeling that they had to pay some kind of debt to the past, but what, or to whom, was not obvious. The final solution of the Jewish question was later called the Holocaust, or Shoah, because the Jews said that it was not exactly genocide, but something else that went beyond genocide, something that went beyond human understanding. And they said that it was specific to the Jews, and lots of people had the feeling that the Jews were appropriating genocide, and said that the victims of any genocide perceived their experience as something that went beyond human understanding, and that the Jews were confusing historical reality with its representation. And so paradoxically, they helped ensure that most people imagined the Holocaust like some dramatic scene from a film. And historians said that Western society had shifted from a traditional understanding of history to a concept of memory that is projected into historical discontinuity. And historians said that the age of identity had finally come to a close because historiography had entered the epistemological era. This kind of piling on of all the rubble of the past with little or no distinction between the significant and the irrelevant might reflect a general post-communist sense of bitterness and ideological rejectionism. It might be an ironic commentary on postmodernism's rejection of a distinction between high and low art or on a supposed postmodern relativism. That an Eastern European narrative only implied here, but I think present nonetheless, of the double genocide suffered by Eastern Europeans, first under Nazism, then under communism, could intrude onto Western European pieties is something new. But whatever Ujednik's own opinion, what is certain is that this method, if I can call it that, 
uh, indicates a post-Cold War loss of certainties and ideological stability. There's certainly, he's not here telling us what to think, just listing out what historian, unknown, unnamed historians might have said about how to think about memory and history. This loss, this loss of certainties uh, and ideological stability, is to be celebrated on the one hand, as it's meant the breaking down of mythic narratives, and more importantly, the demise of dictatorships in Europe. On the other hand, it has opened up spaces for ideological contestation, in which social democratic values are open to attack on the basis of revanchist, anti-anti-fascist, and xenophobic populist stories about the past. The rejection of the communists' legitimizing myth of anti-fascism is linked by many commentators to the post-1989 upsurge in radical right movements and neo-Nazi attacks. As Maria Melksu has argued, recent Eastern European memory politics, quote, has not always struck a resonant chord among their Western counterparts who have attempted to form a common European identity by drawing a line under World War II. Baltic and Polish memory politics have brought up the controversial and intensely debated comparison between Nazi and Stalinist regimes and their respective crimes, thus contesting the uniqueness of Nazi crimes and questioning the singularity of the Holocaust as the crime against humanity of the 20th century. This revisionism, uh, or what sounds like revisionism to Western European ears, is brought out succinctly and trenchantly by Ujednik, not speaking on his own right, but as the narrator of this book, this is the, um, although he doesn't use the, the term double genocide that's come, uh, become so popular, I think it's implied there in, uh, in his text. There are other examples. This kind of revisionism is imagined in an apparently comedic mode in another work which invites readers to question established Western narratives. Pax Variations by Carl Teeger from 2000, uh, who's currently a professor of creative writing at the University of uh, Derby, uh, is a good example. As the title suggests, Pax Variations, the stories that make up Teeger's book uh, are exercises in counterfactual history, imagining alternative scenarios for the post-war world, most of them uh, premised on uh, the Nazis having won the war. The epigraph he uses to the book from uh, Joseph Conrad to the effect that fiction is nearer to the truth than history is indicative of Tiger's approach, even if it is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Driving Der Führer, for example, is a series of interviews conducted by an SS historian with Hitler's chauffeur, Heinrich Selbst, between April 1995 and January 1997, during which the details of the Third Reich's wartime victory and continued expansion are revealed as the names of cities such as Oxford and Birmingham uh, get mentioned. The final piece in, in Tiger's book, uh, an essay entitled Pax Germanica, is, actually, is not a story at all, but it's actually a scholarly discussion uh, of the merits of counterfactual history, explicitly situated in response to the end of the Cold War, which, Tiger suggests, has brought about an opportunity to examine the myths about World War II that became common currency in the West during the post-war period. According to Tiger, uh, novels such as Norman Spinrad's The Iron Dream, 1972, reveal, uh, it's a, a science fiction novel, reveal that considerable unease about the place of Nazism in modern European history still exists, and that the end of the Cold War has permitted this unease to be expressed. As he writes, such novels, quote, are part of a vast speculative subcultural domain 
that reflects not only a widespread fascination with the mythology of Nazism, but an underlying concern, a nagging doubt that somehow the victory over Nazism is not what it seemed. What these books do is to reconsider not only why World War II was fought, but the very tricky question of who, in the long run, actually won the war. In military terms, Hitler and his armies were comprehensively swamped by Allied technology and Soviet numbers. But as we come to understand events in Pinochet's Chile, the new states of former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Iraq and East Timor, the election of an unashamed neo-Nazi in Austria, it is clear that Hitler's ideas were not defeated at all. They were barely even confronted. The ideas were simply driven underground, disguised, co-opted, transmuted by the threat of communism, the victory of democracy, in scare quotes, the attractions of consumer capitalism by the lurking presence of new versions of the other. Here, uh, Tiger sounds rather like Jean-François Lyotard, uh, and similarly hyperbolic, uh, who wrote uh, that Nazism had not been dealt with through rational arguments, but simply beaten down like a mad dog. Yet for all the sensationalist exaggeration, referring to NATO as the heir of Hitler, or to the West as a kind of capitalist democratic fascism, or Poland as a holiday playground and de facto agricultural province of Germany, for example, Tiger is right to say that the Cold War obscured from view the real reach of Nazism, geographically, culturally, and intellectually, and that the end of the Cold War has allowed a flowering of European memories of the war that differ radically from those that were officially approved by Western European welfare capitalists or Eastern European anti-fascist communist regimes. Rather, if historians and others have now exposed the full reach of Nazism and the real extent of pan-European collaboration with it, those who celebrated that fact during the war have been emboldened now in the post-war period to re-articulate that stance in, they, in ways that were impossible outside of the lunatic fringe during the Cold War. The rise of right-wing populism in Denmark, France, Italy, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary, Latvia, and elsewhere across the continent shows that the politics of race, now directed primarily uh, against Muslims rather than Jews, remains a powerful mobilizing force. Whether or not we agree with Tiger that, quote, Nazism, in spite of its military defeat, has returned in a modified, fragmented, and parodic form to haunt modern European culture, the open articulation of a fascination with the Nazi past is undoubtedly a striking phenomenon of post-Cold War European culture, one that is not fading as the years between the war and the present increase. Another challenge to Western European perspectives is the sense of displacement that comes from reading Eastern European literature. Slavenka Draculic has explained how since the fall of communism, the suspicious looks of border guards have become even more harsh than they were during the Cold War. Then, they were suspicious of anyone from the East who had a permit to travel. Now, they find it hard to believe that an Eastern European might genuinely be a tourist rather than a potential illegal immigrant. <coughs> Although, there were, of course, substantial Ukrainian, Polish, Hungarian and Czech communities in Western Europe following 1945, 56 and 68. It seems that few people were prepared for the fact that Eastern Europeans might also like to see the world under normal circumstances. That's to say, not only as DPs or refugees. How strange, then, to find a short novel about an Estonian living in Paris 
uh, excuse the pronunciation, Ternu Ernepalu's border state, uh, which he originally published under the pen name Emil Toda, Toda uh, meaning truth in Estonian, apparently. Um, at the outset, the narrator asserts that countries exist only on maps, just like money exists only in bank accounts. But the narrator also talks about having fled his hometown on the Baltic in order to leave that dying century, not country, century, and to give this testimony in a way which suggests the continued division between East and West, which Draculich also senses. But Ernepalu's story is about the emotional state of the narrator, uh, and that fits neatly with neither West nor East. I and mean, that's the point. It's not actually a, a book about East and Western memory, but it's about the narrator. Uh, a story of a Parisian seeking authenticity in Eastern Europe, so uh, Tony Gatliff's uh, Gaggio Dilo, for example, although it's a great film, uh, would be rather unremarkable. Uh, but the other way round, an Estonian seeking authenticity in Paris, uh, still feels a little bit like the world has been turned upside down, uh, which indeed it has been in many ways since the end of the Cold War. And of course, that authenticity is nowhere to be found, neither in East or West. Uh, this sort of challenge to core European memories and values is quite a shock, I think, uh, to those who are more familiar with the memory writing of authors such as W.G. Siebald, uh, with their comfortingly elegiac tone of loss, and in Siebald, at least, uh, the linkage of geography and memory. Uh, like um, Siebald's books, The Emigrants, The Rings of Saturn, and especially Austerlitz, uh, Alexander Hemon plays with notions of loss and recovery, <clears throat> also through a striking use of place and photography in his superb novel The Lazarus Project, 2008. This book uh, intermingles the story uh, of Lazarus Averbuch, um, a Russian Jewish immigrant to Chicago, shot as an anarchist, and two friends a century later who set out to find what really happened to him. The novel, which flips chronologically and geographically between past and present, between the US and Moldova, is somewhat like uh, a more convincing version of Jonathan Safran Foer's Everything is Illuminated without uh, the scoffing at Eastern Europeans and their funny syntax. Uh, that's a very overrated book, in my opinion. Uh, nevertheless, <coughs> this challenge, uh, this kind of Eastern European revision of, um, of Western core, na core narratives, uh, does not have to come in the shape of revisionism of the sort that sadly mars so many of the post-communist museums and commemorations a downplaying of the impact of Nazism in order to emphasise the crimes of communism, as if it were not possible to discuss them both somberly and without distortion. Budapest's Terror House is the most obvious example, but various museums in the Baltic states and in Romania also reveal the same processes at work, processes uh, which recapitulate traditional stereotypes of Judeo-Bolshevism uh, and overlook indigenous support for communism, not to mention Nazism, or where Nazi collaboration, collaboration is mentioned uh, to excuse it in the name of anti-communism. Proof that these memory wars do not have to be zero-sum games in which the suffering of one group can be found, excuse me, can only be acknowledged by refusing to acknowledge the suffering of another group can be found in history and literature. Um, the history I'll leave to the side for a moment. Uh, but in the latter, in literature, a fine example, I think, and probably the, the best-known work here, is uh, Jan Cross's autobiographical, autobiographical novel, Treading Air, uh, published in uh, Estonian in 1998 and in English in 2003, a book which Cross could never have published in Soviet Estonia before 1991. The book deals at length with the narrator, Jark Sirkels, uh, and the main protagonist, 
former Prime Minister's secretary and now suitcase maker, uh, Ulo Peran's dealings with the Nazis and with the Soviets, for the most part straddling the period between the end of the German occupation and the establishment of the Soviet one. Unlike in the Terror House uh, in Budapest, the protagonists' experiences are not weighted towards the communists, even though uh, their occupation is hardly beautified. Furthermore, Cross berates the Western Allies too, in a way that might have been heard in emigre circles during the Cold War, but could hardly have been expressed in officially approved circles during the Soviet years. So a quotation from the book. Danger was certainly one factor, but more pertinent in the circumstances was a realisation which even the most blind had arrived at, that our third way had become no way. It felt like being clubbed over the head. The West had ceased to support the rebirth of the free Baltic states. By the summer of 1945, the West had sold us out to Stalin on three separate occasions, in Tehran in 1943, in Yalta in 1945, and for a third time in Potsdam that same year. In 1946, we were sold out for the fourth and final time. As these events unfolded, our betrayal became all the more clear, and it felt, as I have said, like a blow to the head with a club, a blow which made us realise that all resistance was futile. Cross refers to his protagonists as members of, quote, the steamrollered generation, those who endured occupying regimes in their country for most of their adult lives. And although most of the book is written without rancour, compromise is the main theme of Cross's works, at the end, the narrator prints verbatim the text of a dream that Perand describes in a notebook. In it, he recounts how he encounters the painter, uh, Maurice de Vlaminck, who uh, hasn't been mentioned previously in the book, and as I understand it, simply stands for European culture. And, um, and he blames him, Perand blames Vlaminck in his dream for abandoning uh, Estonia behind the Iron Curtain. Vlaminck responds, my dear young man, not us, but the history of Europe, the history of the world. It is the historian's macro explanation that Vlaminck offers, but which Perand will not accept. Quote, I say, don't use history as an excuse. It wasn't history, it was you. Your ruthless business affairs, your treacherous connections. And here, I think, is where literature and history part ways. Most historians, however dedicated to recovering the lives of ordinary people, will probably agree that the decision to allow Stalin to swallow the Baltic states was preferable to unleashing another war, or running the risk of doing so. The novelist, however, for all that he deals sensitively with historical matters, is free in the end to offer a different version, one that, after the demise of the Soviet Union, offers a modicum of pride to Estonian national history. But in Cross's case, at least, it's not a pride that revels in its own exclusivity and does not lionise Estonian national identity at the expense of others, even if Cross clearly thought that he was contributing to perpetuating Estonian national identity and memory. Okay, by way of conclusion, um, Patrick Ujednik, who I've already discussed, ends the, his little book, uh, Europeana, with a sarcastic discussion of an unnamed Francis Fukuyama. And this is to continue the kind of one thing after another um, narrative of, of Ujedniks. And in 1989, an American political scientist invented a theory about the end of history, according to which history had actually come to an end because modern science 
and new means of communication allowed people to live in prosperity. And universal prosperity was the guarantee of democracy, and not the contrary, as the Enlightenment philosophers and humanists once believed. And citizens were actually consumers, and consumers were also citizens, and all forms of society evolved toward liberal democracy, and liberal democracy would in turn lead to the demise of all authoritarian forms of government, and to political and economic freedom and equality, and a new age in human history. But it would no longer be historical. But lots of people did not know the theory, and continued to make history as if nothing had happened. As a result, we can say that not only has history changed, but so has memory. Far from signalling the end of history, the end of the Cold War has meant that paradoxically the memory of World War II gets stronger the further away from it we get in time. Or rather, certain aspects of the war get remembered and commemorated at the expense of others. In Britain, this means the genocide of the Jews, child-friendly narratives of uh, the evacuation and the blitz spirit, the notion of the good war uh, and the dangers of appeasement. In Western Europe, it means liberation from Nazism and the building of a safe European home. In Eastern Europe, it means the fight against fascism and communism and the double victimization narrative that both sits with and challenges the assumptions of the Western European model. That these competing narratives exist is a mark of the fact that the end of history did not come about in 1989. It's testament to the contested nature of the public sphere after the end of the Cold War and to the uneasy but exciting fact that the breakdown of the old mythic narratives that accompanied the rebuilding of Europe after 1945 have been replaced with a babel in which anything goes. Thanks. Questions, thoughts, responses, difficulties, worries, please. Yes, um, maybe it is. Maybe it's a good starting point for learning about the Holocaust.
you didn't say anything about realist fiction mm -hmm. um, and its role in contributing to or, or taking away from mm -hmm. the elaboration of memory. Um, and, and yet it's fair to say that, um, you know, in mainstream, if you like, um, commercial literature, obviously, you know, the realist tradition remains alive and kicking. I'm wondering if you, if you do have any thoughts on that. What books are you thinking of? No, I'm not going to name any particular. Well, I mean, I suppose um, one of the reasons I wanted to mention books that have a, a more complex uh, narrative style is bearing in mind Hayden White's claim that actually that kind of frag fragmented, fractured narrative might be more realist for describing uh, a fractured, fragmented experience than a realist novel might be. Which is, you know, in, way, in Hayden White's terms, imposing the kind of the whiff of the ideal, uh, a, a determinist and overdetermined um, narrative structure onto the events of the past in a way that the events themselves could never have unfolded. Yeah, like, I think that's an, an interesting um, response. But does that then not share some, at least, sort of some tincture of the, yes. of, the of, of the claim that you found so bizarre? I think was the word that you used at the start of your talk mm -hmm. that the Holocaust imposes certain formal constraints or prerequisites on literary Yes, yes it does. Mm -hmm. Yes it does, the mm -hmm. but the prerequisite is not to be empirically accurate, mm -hmm. but it's in some way nonetheless to manifest stylistically the, is it trauma that that's being... Yes, and not, not so much the trauma, I don't think uh, White would use that term. White I think would simply use the term modernist and would say that um, modernist fiction is, if you like, um, the, a better or more appropriate vehicle for uh, thinking about modernist events, if you like. Um, that's something that Recur says as well, and, and White, I think, implies that. And I've written elsewhere that I actually find that a weakness in the argument, because for precisely the reason that you've articulated, that, it, that implies that there is still some kind of reality effect available. Um, and, but that doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that reality effect is not dependent on empirical accuracy. Uh, anyway, to get to, back to your point about realist novels, um, I, well, I'm floundering a little bit unless you provide with a few titles of what you're thinking. I mean, are you thinking of kind of middle brown fiction like Euris or? Well, or, I, or, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I, I mean, I was actually, yes, I, mean, I was thinking of obviously, you know, I mean, I wasn't necessarily thinking of particular sort of contemporary writer. I was thinking of, you know, exactly middle brown fiction mm -hmm. like the young Euris, John mm -hmm. Percy, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, you know, the quasi sort of doc documentary, mm -hmm. novel, like the novelization, like, you know, even, even Gerald Green's novelization of his own script for the Holocaust miniseries, etc. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in, in, in so far as those provide, they do provide conduits to the experience. I mean, obviously it's easy to dismiss them because they're little brown. Mm -hmm. but, um, and that's what, I try, what I'm trying to come up and fail with the Balkan Carbon or not is, a, is, a, is, is an extremely good <laughs> sort of classic realistic Holocaust novel, which I'm not, which maybe tells its own story. Yes, maybe, maybe it does. I don't know. I didn't. I mean, I didn't consciously and deliberately leave out realist fiction. I just wanted to focus on what I thought were more interesting uh, examples of, of the genre. And I, and this is a cop out, obviously. I'd have to. <laughs> I'd have to think about it and um, you know, provide you with a. I can't provide you with really an off the top of my head response to that. Oh, well, I'm just thinking. Um that it's slightly related, I'm just interested in your opinions on a specific novel, because 
um, uh, in, in, as part of this illustrating this whole theme that you're talking about, and the children they are, but but and I'm sorry, Rybakov. And, I mean, it's not specifically about World War Two, but I, I, I mean, you're talking about World War Two, I know. But uh, uh, I just interested. Um, just because that's just because that's not life race anyway. I'm um, afraid I haven't. I was just simply being, you know, because obviously it was uh, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I do know is obviously it made a big impact mm -hmm. when, when it was published at the time of Glasnost, and it's mm -hmm. nothing mm -hmm. where you know it's about the run up just, just to, to Stalin's mm -hmm. terror mm -hmm. in the 1930s. I'm, af I'm afraid I haven't read it, yeah. but um, but I think it's, it's interesting that um, I mean, it illustrates the same kind of theme, which is that those sorts of topics could again could be discussed in ways, of course, that didn't simply pay lip service to the Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy. Well, it finishes because the, the last page it's uh, it's the assassination of Kirov mm -hmm. into some like this form. Mm -hmm. So it's, it does so it doesn't actually deal with actually nasty itself. It's just very it, it, it heralds the beginning. Right. I'll, I'll follow it up. Well, yeah, it's part of the John Monet lectures, and I couldn't help wondering, of course, where do you see this for the future of Europe? And you know, Europe beyond governments. What is this? What implications does kind of a fragmenting of narratives, or the kind of being split between East and West? What does this have for? No, I, uh, well, the, it's a very important question because actually I think that um, the EU, for all its flaws, has been, uh, I think, uh, one of the main factors uh, for stability in Eastern Europe. That in a situation, certainly in the first decade after the collapse of communism, where what you see are democratic structures but without a democratic mindset, um, and, and you know, in some extreme cases, kind of uh, bandit capitalism uh, accompanying dem democratic structures. The EU imposed uh, a certain stability, I think, um, and that's to talk strictly uh, about um, political structures, uh, financial constraints, and other things that are the concerns of um, social science that you know this series is intended to complement. Uh, but um, hand in hand with that, then, is the, the competition between EU narratives and those that, uh, which are approved, of course, officially by uh, all the states of the EU, and those narratives that are competing with them. Uh, I, I'm, despite what I've said, I, I want to be optimistic about it, because an example would be um, most of the states of Europe have now carried out commissions into uh, the history of. Um, the Holocaust in their countries and in Eastern Europe they've also carried out commissions into the history of communism and there, in Romania for example which has had a, quite a problem with um, fascism in the post-communist period recapitulating its interwar history um, the official um, these official uh, projects on both on the Holocaust in Romania and on communism in Romania have I think been models of sobriety and uh, kind of uh, disinterestedness. They've been extremely well produced, professionally produced, uh, and uh, unsparing of what actually happened in, in Romania in terms of uh, the Romanian contribution to the final solution on the one hand and um, indigenous uh, layers of uh, support for uh, communism and its, its bastardization under Ceausescu. So uh, I think there is hope insofar as these official narratives uh, provide at least, uh, or I think, or for the most part, um, authentic uh, and, and well-constructed narratives that are reliable uh, and, and that uh, can contest 
uh, the populist, uh, xenophobic uh, narratives. But on the other hand, I mean, we only have to see what's happening at the moment with, the, with respect to border controls in Italy and, and France, the debate about um, North African uh, refugees, to see that uh, it's quite possible to imagine uh, core Europe, i.e. Western Europe, itself being the, um, the avant-garde of uh, a kind of xenophobic um, change, if you like, to, uh, to EU uh, politics. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I, I, it, doesn't look, it doesn't look good, uh, but I think for the time being, um, the, uh, the more extremist elements are, are being held in check, partly by the structures of the EU themselves. Of course, the stru those structures can allow for uh, being taken over by, uh, by radical elements, but I think that's, uh, but to say that that was going to happen would be rather alarmist. trouble me that much, I have to admit. Um, I think you know, a work enters into the public sphere and is therefore there to be contested. Uh, if it's fiction, then as I said, I don't see that whether or not it's empirically accurate matters very much. And uh, with The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, for example, um, its empirical inaccuracy is not, I think, what renders it bad. Um, you know, there, are, there are better explanations for that. Uh, in, in, the same, in the same way that, um, you know, to take an example from history, you could say that the, the reasons why Goldhagen's Hitler's Willing Executioner, uh, Executioners is a bad book is not because it's empirically accurate. <laughs> you know, you can have an empirically accurate but, but still quite poor history. Um, and it's interesting, it has been contested, I thought. Sorry? Yes, it has been on numerous, on numerous uh, grounds. Uh, you can, but I think. Uh, you could probably do that with any book. I mean, if you subject any history book to that kind of fine tooth comb analysis, I mean, I dread somebody doing that to one of my books. The way the way, the way that book was kind of uh, microscopically and forensically uh, analysed in order to pick up every minor slip that he'd made when transcribing documents from the archives was was quite tough and unnecessary. In fact, I think to demonstrate why it was, um, I mean, it's one way of doing it. Uh, Ruth Bettina Byrne uh, was, I think, the best example of demonstrating why empirically it was a poor book, but it's not the only grounds on which it, and I think not the most important one in terms of uh, explaining why it's not a good book, but in terms of fiction, no, I don't, I don't know, maybe others feel differently here who, who write fiction or, um, or who, who read it, but I'm sure most novelists and people who read fiction of course feel that there, there is a moral dimension to what they do and to um, when we read fiction. Of course there is. Um, but I don't think a, 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 a novelist has to be morally obliged to, to the subject. Do you, um, so do you not believe that fiction can have influence on people? Very much. Very yes. much. But it's it surprising that as a historian you don't, you're not troubled by a fictional work is particularly biased and, mm -hmm. and presents an entirely different view. And I'm not talking about mm -hmm. the examples mm -hmm. you gave, which are postmodern, mm -hmm. because these yeah. people 
that they know their stuff. Mm -hmm. They know their history. They've done their research. Yeah. That's why they can mm -hmm. cleverly mm -hmm. present a different mm -hmm. alternative. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm talking about you know ones that are, are trying to present a particular view. Mm -hmm. You don't think that that I am trouble. I am trouble. I don't. I don't know uh, how much influence they, those uh, a particular book like that might have. And if I read a book like that that troubled me in terms of my view on the world, then yes, I, I would agree with you that I would be personally troubled by it. But I think the novelist has every right to do that. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That a historian doesn't have the right. A historian has the duty to be empirically accurate, but a novelist does not, and 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 can therefore put forward. Um, any any view uh, that he or she he or she likes. Or if they're doing, but if they're doing a piece of historical fiction, mm -hmm. and it's presented as historical fiction, and so this is based on true events. I mean, where do you draw the line? That's always the mm -hmm. the thing with with history and literature. And if it's you know they're not saying this is a piece of postmodern mm -hmm. historical mm -hmm. fiction where I'm presenting a different view of it. I think it's quite simple. In in the case of a, a work of history. The individual statements that make up that work have to be empirically defensible, and, and in fiction they don't. So in, I don't know. Take a book like Philip Roth's uh, book on um, what's it called? On no, the one about um, that imagines Lindbergh becoming president. Uh, the plot against America. The plot against America. Um, there's a good example because the first part of that is rooted in historical events and reads very clearly as a kind of historical fiction where he puts words into the mouths of, of uh, historical characters, but nevertheless you feel as though this could, could have happened in a sense. The second half of the book loses its way because it then wanders into um, counterfactual history and becomes less interesting. But even, but even so, it be doesn't become less interesting because it's empirically inaccurate. I think it becomes less interesting because, as with all such examples in that genre, once, a bit like science fiction in a way, unless it's, unless it's very, very good, once you imagine beyond you know, five or ten years hence, it's very difficult to sustain a kind of a narrative coherence. Uh, so I'm, I'm not troubled by um, novelists writing about anything they like. I'm so, I agree with you that I would be troubled by uh, a novelist having enormous influence over the public sphere if people thought that uh, what was blatantly not true was in fact true. But that's, that's what, what uh, historians and other uh, journalists and others are there to do, to say this is, might be a great novel, but you know, please bear in mind that it's not true. That's, that's okay. <laughs> Can I just ask you, picking up that point, I mean, I, I have to say you mentioned a huge number of books from a variety of countries none of which I've come across. Do you think that they are beginning to shape the memory that it could be called popular memory? I'm always very struck here if you just take, you know, you were taking certain aspects of mm -hmm. what we might call popular memory or mm -hmm. popular interpretation of the British part in the Second World War, mm -hmm. and then you look at, let's say, the popular press's approach towards the British Army, and that doesn't, to my mind, it just seems to be any significant psychological shift in the way in which people mm -hmm. view that element in British life. Do you think things are shifting, let's say in e Eastern Europe, in terms of the memories changing? I think they have shifted enormously um, since merely the fact of, of being able to discuss the crimes of communism. You see, that's the first big shift. And what happened after the end of, of communism was that the ability then to discuss the crimes of communism um, meant that 
the crimes of Nazism uh, didn't only take a back seat, but because of local uh, indigenous uh, histories, also were then um, not always celebrated, uh, but certainly were downplayed for the usual uh, reason, the return of uh, anti-Semitic stereotypes about Judeo-Bolshevik. Who, who brought communism to Hungary? The Jews brought communism to Hungary. And therefore, um, local support for Nazism was beautified in, in certain cases. Um, in, um, for example, resist the Resistance Museum in Tallinn, uh, you can see this, that the um, local support for, for the Nazis is justified because it's uh, reflected a kind of anti-communism. Anti so that's the first big shift. And I think what's changing now is that actually, uh, whilst that uh, narrative continues to have considerable traction, it's, it's being challenged again. That actually there's an enormous pressure coming from uh, the EU, from uh, the US uh, and elsewhere to say, hang on a minute, we accept the fact that you had a tough time under communism. That doesn't mean um, you can start telling uh, all sorts of fiction uh, about, about the Holocaust and uh, local support for, for Nazism. Um, so I think, yes, it is changing and hopefully, uh, hopefully changing for the better. Whether that's true on the popular level, I don't know. But at the official level, I think there are going to be a lot more challenges to um, the sort of museum like the Terror House in Budapest. For example, in Skopje in Macedonia, uh, there's a Holocaust museum being built which should be very interesting, I think it's due to open in 2014, that should be very interesting in terms of um, how to relate um, the history of the Holocaust in Yugoslavia to uh, the wars of Yugoslav succession of the 1990s. So it's continually changing all the and time. do you think then that literature, because it has some freedoms of history, doesn't have will be the kind of outriders of this change, they have the liberty for all mm -hmm. sorts of reasons to Shift this. I don't know where they are doing it. I don't do things. Yes, but, but yes, but to return to the previous question, I don't think we should be afraid of that. I mean, I, I think it's. I think that's okay. That actually, um, people can say what they like, but we're perfectly able still to say actually, um, that's nonsense. No, nice book, but no. <laughs> that's that's fine. Uh, for example? For example, there's a novel called Pavel and I, written by Dan Valletta, mm -hmm. who's a young, young historian, currently writing fiction, mm -hmm. and the novel is based. It's quite, uh, it, it was published in 2007, I think. Uh -huh. It was quite successful. It was translated in like 10 languages. Mm -hmm. So which country? It was it's actually written in English. The author is, uh, well, Finsuk, he has a very complicated history. Mm -hmm. He's the son of Czech refugees. He grew up in Germany and then he was educated in Britain at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> I don't know it, I'm afraid. I mean, this is the problem, uh, isn't it? We're talking about this sort of subject. In Berlin, 1946. And so for me, it was quite interesting mm -hmm. to read that because I'm, I don't think that's What's the book called? It's called Pavel and I. How do you spell it? Pavel is spelled Pavel. D A I like Paul. And I. Not Pavel. And he's recently published another book, another novel called The Quiet Twin, which is based in Vienna, 1939. So again, kind of historical novel, but also kind of fiction. Mm -hmm. And he argues that, well, he, he 
know, he based his work on a kind of real historical mm -hmm. facts, but then again, he kind of... Well, um, I suppose there's a long tradition of this, isn't there? I mean, uh, Simon Sharma uh, produced Dead Certainties uh, I don't know, 20 years or so ago and got into a lot of trouble with historians who said you can't, you can't put uh, speeches into the minds of you know, the great American generals of, uh, of the Civil War. Um, but, you know, um, again, I think it's... Uh, al although I've said, of course, that history has a fictive component, if you step in step into the realm of uh, inventing material it's not really history anymore is it? Oh, it's kind of um, it's a sort of history I can't think of a better term, it's a sort of history uh, but there's no reason why a historian can't write, can't write novels I, mean, I couldn't do it myself but, I, uh, but not because I'm you know, morally opposed to doing so, only because I lack the talent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can do it, then if you can do both, then brilliant. But I'll follow up those references. Thank you. That's very interesting. I, I suppose I'd quite like to go back to a question you've already answered before, which is about um, so your question about the um, you ended with about the, the sorry the sort of babel of voices at the song. Uh, and one of the things that I think about quite a lot is the ways in which there are the, 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 the public sphere which fiction exists or is thrown into and then say, contested and so on is not a sort of even game. So there are certain, so I think there are certain sorts of fictions um, that disappear or aren't talked about or so mm -hmm. on, and certain sorts that are praised and so on. You talked about, um, oh, help me. Uh, Saffron Foer's novel, mm -hmm. you know, which is great, I've written about it, it's great mm -hmm. cultural highlights, mm -hmm. whereas many, the novels you talked about, I'm, afraid, I'm ashamed to say that I don't know. And so I was, I'm trying to think about ways in which there's a sort of um, literary public, international public sphere, mm -hmm. which is sort of biasing things one way or t'other, so it's not as simple, not as, it's not as it's not straightforward as something being put out there and then contested, because who wants to publish no. a novel about this, or who wants to... Yeah. Review about that. Well, indeed, I think we're all familiar, of course, with the problem of um, fiction in translation in English. Well, uh, yeah. It's a very tiny uh, percentage of the fiction market, much smaller than it is in Germany, for example, or other uh, continental European countries. So, yeah, of course, there's already a bias against um, serious European fiction. Uh, and books, for example, um, uh, the uh, Nepali novel that I uh, quoted is published in... Um, a series published by Northwestern University Press of uh, you know, stories from an unbound Europe or something like that, which is, um, I imagine, has a very small uh, print run and a small circulation. So, yes, of course, it's uh, the, the relevance of marketing uh, and, and uh, the nature of publishing is obviously important here. Um, yeah, no, so I'm trying to hear that, the, the, the political significance of that, the ways in which. Well, it might be one way in which the more uh, outre works are held in check, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, which again, you know, it might that might be good and it, it might be bad. It also means that books that I consider to be interesting, like the ones I've um, cited, apart from the Jan Cross book, which is published by Harvard, and, you know, it's perfectly um, mainstream in terms of serious fiction, is. Uh, most of them are, other, are 
little known mm. you know small presses so obviously uh, they're going to they're, they're in the public sphere but whether anyone knows about them or not is a, a different matter no of course I think that's actually that's mm. really quite important Can I just ask that, do you think those books were illustrations of, an, of a uh, framework of your own, or do you think that they were symptoms of something that is really moving through Europe? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think the fact that they exist, uh, and that I could have come up with plenty more examples, um, suggests that they're, uh, there's something really afoot. But I think what what they are is, if let's come back to Barry's question, is that they are, um, for me, interesting because they're good books. Uh, they are, if you like, the literary um, thin end of the wedge. I'm sure there are much more uh, populist uh, s versions uh, of uh, the same kind of thing going on. So, yeah, I mean, I think it really does illustrate something actually happening. Any more questions or responses or comments? More novels that I'm ashamed I haven't read. We're going to have to thank Dan for a really stimulating start to the, the, this year's programme of Jean-Paul Lectures. I have to thank Dan very much for you. Thank you.